Would you continue with me in prayer? Yes, we ask, Lord, that you would teach us full obedience. Cause our, our faith to rise and cause our eyes to see your majestic love. Give us a fresh vision of your love this morning and let that produce in us full obedience and joyful obedience. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. My junior year of high school, I got to play on a really good basketball team. Our practices were really competitive. Uh, we, in fact, so much so that we probably had eight or nine different players on the team that could fight for a starting position at any time, and so they were especially competitive because of that. We went 17-1 and that season, and we entered the playoffs as the favorite to win the state championship. We had won the previous year as well. Now, you can see how this is setting up for a really sad ending. <laughs> and it was a sad ending because we played a team in the semifinal game that had one really good shooter on it. And he had an incredible game. And we didn't play nearly as well as we had done during the 17 previous wins that season. And so we lost in the semifinal game and we settled for a win in the consolation game the next day. Now what's interesting to me as I think back on this experience is that I have no doubt in my mind that we were the best team. We had more talent on our team, more players with more talent, so, so it was a simple fact that we were the best team, but the reality was that we didn't play like the best team when it mattered. And that's the point, isn't it? Something can be true in reality, but not flesh itself out practically. So last week, we read these important true words from 1 John chapter 2. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, if we have overcome the evil one, then why do we need to be told in the very next verse, verse 15, do not love the world? You see the logic of that question? If, if 1 John 5.19 says that the world lies in the power of the evil one, but 1 John 2 verse 13 and 14 say we have overcome the evil one, then why do we need to be told not to love the world in 1 John 2.15? Well, the reason is because while there is a very true sense in which we have overcome the evil one by our faith in Jesus... 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 made this point when it said that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. In other words, when we trust in Jesus, his sacrifice pays the penalty for our sins, and we're completely forgiven. We've overcome the evil one. While that's true, it's called our justification, we still live in a world 
that is controlled by the evil one and therefore can be influenced by his temptations and by his schemes to stop believing what we know to be true. This is why Jesus prayed this way for his disciples in John chapter 17. This is the same author, but we're in the gospel of John now. Chapter 17, he records a prayer of Jesus for his disciples, and then it also says, for all those who will believe in me after them. And this is what he says. Listen to how similar this is. Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So in John 17, we see the same thing. Jesus says, keep them from the evil one, but then right after that, he says, they are not of the world. If they're not of the world, then why do they need to be kept from the evil one who, who has control over the world? Well, the reason, again, is because sometimes what's true about our identity in Christ is not our experience in our daily lives. This is why we start every Sunday with a prayer of confession. So this morning, we're, we're going to look at this command to not love the world in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, so that by God's grace and by the power of the Spirit, what is true about our identity, what we heard about from verses 12 to 14, by God's grace will flesh itself, itself out in our daily lives as we look at what he says in verses 15 to 17. You could think of all of this as as an image of a tree with roots and fruits showing. See, 1 John 2, 15 to 17 was written to those who are already believing. This command that we read here in 1 John 2, 15 to 17 is not the means by which we come into a relationship with God. Rather, it's the fruit that comes from a relationship with God that already exists. The root is our identity in Christ, and the fruit that comes from that is what we're going to read about in 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Now, if we, if we switch these around, trying to earn a relationship with God by not loving the world, or you could list a bunch of other things that we could do, then one, we'll fail to understand what these verses are saying, because we'll read them out of context. And two, we'll live a life of despair because it will be a life absent of forgiveness. We'll never be able to measure up and we'll never receive the forgiveness that's offered to those who come to Jesus in repentance. So, rightly understood then, 1 John 2, 15 to 17, and this is so important here at the very beginning, is the fruit that grows out of a living, active, and growing relationship with God in Jesus that we heard about last week in, in verses 12 to 14. There's a reason that John put verses 12 to 14 before verses 15 to 17. All right. Now, the final thing I want to mention before we jump into the text itself is just a quick look at the structure of these verses. We're going to look at three verses this morning, and there's just one main command in these verses, and it's right at the beginning. Do not love the world or the things in the world. That's the main point of this passage. But then John's going to go on after that to list two, or to give two, what I'm calling motivations. 
a negative motivation colored here in one color and then a positive motivation after that. So that's the way we're going to look at this passage. We're going to look at the command that he gives and then we're going to look at the two motivations that he gives after that. All right, so first let's look at the command. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, as I read this, one, one question that came to my mind was, as I was meditating on loving the world and how we're committed to not love the world, was why are we told not to love the world when maybe the most well-known verse in all of the Bible, written by the same author, by the way, says that God so loved the world? Those questions, those kinds of questions we ought to ask and we ought to wrestle with um, as we're reading Scripture when one thing seems to be contradictory to another thing. Why are we told not to love the world when, when the same author in another place says that God so loved the world? This is good for us to work through questions like this. So, so we'll work through this in a minute. Another question, maybe this is the most obvious question that you would ask when, when we're told, do not love the world, well, what is... What is the world? What are we being told not to love? Well, this word world can refer to different things in Scripture depending on the context. Even in, even in just the, the, this letter of 1 John itself, the word world is used in different ways. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Let me give you three ways the word world is used. First of all, in 1 John 2 verse 2, Look at this one. It says, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So here, I think pretty clearly, world refers to people. Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of people. All right, so this is the first way the word world is used. Secondly, look at 1 John chapter 4. Here's two examples of it. It says, many false prophets have gone out into the world... Uh, then verse 17 says, because as he is, so also are we in this world. So in these verses, John is using the, world, the word world to refer to a place, the, the physical place, the earth on which we live. It's another way the word world is used here in 1 John. And then there's a third way that this word world is used. And let me give you two examples of this. 1 John 3 verse 13 says... You'll see kind of a unique emphasis with these two examples. Do not be surprised, brothers, when the world hates you. Look at 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So this, this third use of the word world that John uses throughout his letter and really throughout all of his writings, has this idea of hostility towards God and his people. So it's this way of thinking and living that's hostile to God and to his people. So then we need to ask the question, what's John referring to in our passage when he uses the word world? Well, let's think through these. First of all, people. Well, I don't think he's referring to that we shouldn't love people I mean, we just considered a couple weeks ago in 1 John that we are to love people. Um, Jesus himself even says that we should love our enemies, so I don't think that he's talking about people in 1 John 2.15. Secondly, what about place? Is John saying that we should hate 
the physical world that we live in? Well, again, no, I don't think this is the case because we're encouraged from the very beginning of creation to care for and cultivate the earth on which we live. And and I think it would be helpful for me to also say here at the beginning that this command to not love the world is not saying that you should not enjoy the good gifts that God gives you in this world to enjoy. That you, that you shouldn't enjoy a, a nice, beautiful hike. That you shouldn't enjoy your food that you eat. That you shouldn't enjoy activities that you like to do. Now, it's possible to take the good gifts that, God's gives, that God gives us and, and idolize them or to use them with the wrong motivation. And we'll get to some examples of that as we go along. But it's also possible, and we ought to take the things that God gives us on this earth and enjoy them and let them point us back to his goodness and kindness and thank him for them. So when you see don't love the world, don't think this means that you shouldn't enjoy sports or a movie or food or vacation. All right, so it doesn't refer to people. It's not referring to the place in which we live. Well, then we're left with this third option, this, this way of thinking and living that's hostile to God. And, and this is the way I would define it, the way that he's using the word world in our text specifically. And I'm going to use some of the language that our text uses. So the word world in our passage is, is that which encourages pursuing my own will and desires apart from God. This is what John's referring to when he says, don't love the world. Don't love that which encourages pursuing your own will and desires apart from God. The heart of our sin is self-worship. I'm going to do what I want to do, and no one else is going to tell me what to do. And I'm going to do it because I feel like it. I'm going to yell at my family because they made me upset and it's going to make me feel better if I yell at them and it's going to put them in their place and that's going to feel really good. That's the love of the world. I'm going to eat this food without thought of how much would be good for my body simply because I feel like it, I'm stressed out, and I know this is going to make me feel better in this moment. My thoughts and my actions serve my own will and my own desires. That's the heart of the sinfulness of man. It's self-worship. No one else is going to tell me what to do. Doing what feels good to me in the moment without any thought of what pleases God. But not only is this the natural disposition of man as fallen human beings, it's also how our current culture is encouraging us to think and to live. Parents of teenagers, the world is discipling your children to live in this way. Our modern culture encourages us to do whatever we want to do, whatever makes us feel good. But really, our our current modern culture doesn't just disciple us to do whatever we want to do. It disciples us that we can be whatever we want to be. We are encouraged to create our own new identities, ignoring the identity that was given to us by God, a man or woman 
made in the image of God to glorify him and have a relationship with him. Our culture tells us that identity is not something that's given to us, but something that we create for ourselves. The world says that meaning in life comes from this self-creation, making yourself whoever you want to be, rather than from a recreation in the image of Jesus. Do you see that this is what the world is? That the world is that which encourages pursuing my own will and desires apart from what God wants. Who is, who is God to tell me what to do, is what the world says. Now, in a moment, we're going to talk about what he means when he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. We'll talk about that in a minute. But for now, let me just ask this simple question after defining the world in this way. Whose will guides your daily thinking and actions? Or I could ask it this way, what motivates, who or what motivates what you do daily? Let me try to get even more practical. What motivates your social media posts? Do you consider what God wants from your public communication? Or are you only concerned about your own name? What motivates your conversations at work? Your desire to get ahead at the cost of other people and what you say about them? Or do you consider the reasons why God has placed you specifically there? What motivates your financial decisions? Or the way you spend your free time? Or the way you spend your alone time? Have you you relegated God to just one day of the week? Or, Or the first part of one day of the week? Or does God influence when you go to sleep, how long you sleep, what you do when you first wake up, your interactions with your family, your conversations at work, how you plan out what you're going to do with your family in the evenings. The world is that which encourages you to pursue your own will and desires apart from God. Now, my initial question, again, that question that I said that came to my mind when, when, I, when I was thinking through this was, why, why are we told not to love the world when, 1 John, 3, or when John 3.16 says that God so loved the world? Well, I think our current definition of the world makes John 3.16 all the more amazing. The world that God loved and entered into and was rejected by and that killed him was the world that had rejected him and pursued its own will and desires apart from him. Each and every one of us in this room, every single one of us either is or was caught up in this way of thinking and living. So the wonder of God's grace demonstrated in John 3.16 is that in spite of the fact that the world had rejected anything that God had said, in spite of that, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God offers eternal life to anyone who will turn from this kind of self-worship in repentance and to him in faith. 
D.A. Carson says of John 3.16, he says, God's love expressed in John 3.16 is to be admired, not because the world is so big and includes so many people, but because the world is so bad. So the command in this text, in our text for this morning, is simply this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Do not love that which encourages pursuing your own will and desires apart from God. Now, after giving us this command, John's going to go on to encourage us to look a little bit deeper into our lives personally. And as we look into our lives, he's going to encourage us to be honest with ourselves about what we find there. So look with me at the end of verse 15 to the end of verse 16. It says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So it's here we see the negative motivation that John's going to give, and and that's where he's encouraging us that what you love reveals who you are. What you love reveals what's true about you. Now, if you think that, that everything that John said up to this point isn't that big of a deal, then then let this conditional statement that he gives right here at the end of verse 15 land on you. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now the bluntness of that conditional statement could cause you to wonder, does that mean if I've ever loved the world before that the love of the Father is not in me? Well, no, that's not what it says. It doesn't say that if you've ever sinned or if you've ever struggled against the love of the world, then the love of the Father is is not in you. Look at what it says. It says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There's no struggle in that statement. Now, I think the point of this conditional statement is to cause each one of us to turn inward and to look at our own hearts and examine what's true about us. What's true about your motivations and your character? And then to be honest with yourself and to not be deceived about the way other people are living. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, if we're going to rightly understand what this verse is saying or what this sentence is saying, if anyone loves the world, then the love of the Father is not in him, then we have to know what he's meaning when he says the love of the Father. This phrase, love of the Father could mean at least a couple different things. It could mean my love for the Father. In other words, if anyone loves the world, then the love for the Father is not in them. Or it could mean the Father's love. In other words, if anyone loves the world, then the Father's love is not in him. All right, so which which one of these is this? Well, when I first came to this passage... When I initially read it, I assumed that it was talking about my love for the Father. Because the first part says, if anyone loves the world, then the love for the Father is not in him. Like, you can't love the world and, you, and the Father at the same time. And, and that's true. And there are other passages in Scripture that make that very clear. But as I started to work through this a little bit more, particularly as I noticed the connection between verse 15 and verse 16, sorry, I'm getting a, a bit technical here, but follow with me. 
As I noticed the connection between verse 15 and 16, I came to the conclusion that this is actually talking about the Father's love. Now let me read both of these verses together and help you see this. He says, if anyone loves the world, then the love of the Father, the Father's love, is not in that person. Now, we might pause there and we might say, well, that's quite a claim, John. Like, that's a bold claim. How can you, what gives you the right to make the claim that if anyone loves the world, then the Father's love is not in him? Well, his answer to that question is verse 16. Notice it starts with the word for. We could insert the word because in its place. In other words, verse 16 is the reason for making that claim. So what gives you the claim, John, to say that if anyone loves the world, then the Father's love is not in him? Well, his answer is, for all that is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. You'll notice I took out what's inside the dashes right there to make verse 16 a little clearer. We'll get back to what's in the dashes in just a minute. Here's John's point. If the Father's love is in you, it's going to be producing certain kinds of desires. What it's not going to produce is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those things, notice he says, are from the world. There are some things that are from the Father, that what the Father's love produces in someone's life, and there are some things that are from the world. So this is why I believe that the love of the Father is talking about the Father's love, because John's point here is that the Father's love in someone's life is going to produce certain kinds of desires and affections. So if you see loving the world in someone's life, then you can assume that the Father's love is not there because it doesn't produce that kind of desire. Now, if you feel like this is a bit heavy or a bit too harsh, then let me share a cross-reference with you. James 4, verse 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, to further understand what loving the world is, let's look at what he puts inside those dashes in verse 16. The things inside the dashes in verse 16 are what he's referring to in verse 15 when he says, don't love the world or the things in the world. So we might say, well, what do you mean by the things in the world? What are the things in the world? Well, what he says inside the dashes right here in verse 16 are the things in the world that he's talking about. And he names three things. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, there's a lot that could be said here about each one of these. We could talk about each one individually and kind of pick them apart and nuance them. Um, But what I want to do is I want to just make two observations that are true about all three of these. So let me just give you two observations about what are the things in the world by observing stuff that's true about all three of them. And the first thing is that each of the three things that John names here are temporal. They have to do with setting my desires or my cravings on fleshly things, things that I can see with my eyes, things that I can have right now. In other words, the the world under the power 
of the evil one produces these kinds of temporal cravings on what you can see. Think immediate gratification. I feel like pursuing this sexual desire, and so I'm going to pursue it. Why? Because I can. And I feel like it, and it's right there in front of me. I can have it if I want to. Interestingly, this word life, when he says pride of life, it has to do with the things that we have. It's maybe a little more specific than the word life. This word is also used in 1 John 3, 17, which you see here where he says, if anyone has the world's goods, so that word goods is the word life, same word. Look at 1 John 3, 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, then how does God's love abide in him? So you see how this example of 1 John 3, 17 shows us that the pride of life has to do with the things that we have, our possessions. Now, I think 1 John 3, 17 is a good test for what we value. Look at what it says. It says, if anyone has material things and he sees a brother who has a need, so I see him, I've got means to help him, and yet I close my heart to him, I'd rather, I mean, I've got things I want to do, I've got a bucket list of things that I'd like to do on, in, the, in the world, or I've got things in my house that need to get done, and so I'd rather use my things for myself. What's his conclusion? How does God's love abide in him? Now, why does he make that conclusion? Well, the reason is because God's love in someone produces certain kinds of desires, namely the desire to help your brother who's in need. It doesn't produce selfishness with your possessions. Do you ever make financial decisions or technological purchases because of the status that it gives you in other people's eyes? Parents, do you make decisions about what your kids have or what your kids will participate in because it kind of puts you at a particular level in other people's eyes? Loving the world and the things in the world is setting your hopes and desires on temporal things. Jesus warns us against this in Matthew 6. We sang a song that included some thoughts like this in it this morning. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So the things in the world first are temporal. Secondly, the second observation I want to make about them is that they're internal. Notice what he says. He lists three things that are in the world, and notice what he says they are. Desires, desires, and pride. Now, what do you notice about all three of those? They're things that start inside of you. So here's what you need to know about loving the world this morning. It's something that begins inside of you. Now, Christians in conservative, conservative circles like ours have often labeled certain 
practices as off-limits or worldly, and if you stay away from those practices, then you'll be free from the sin of worldliness. Like, don't go to the movie theater, don't listen to certain kinds of music, don't wear certain kinds of clothes. But that's not the point of 1 John 2, 15 to 17. These verses are not trying to point us to some agreed-upon list of off-limit practices in a subculture. Rather, these verses are pointing us to examine our own hearts for everything that we do. In other words, none of us should sit here this morning and think, well, I'm, I'm safe from the sin of worldliness because I don't do fill in the blank. This was the problem of the Pharisees, wasn't it? One time the Pharisees came to Jesus and they complained to Jesus that his disciples were not doing the ceremonial washing of hands before they ate. And Jesus, in response, had some kind of scathing words for the Pharisees. And later, after that interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, Jesus is interacting with his disciples, and he's, he's talking to them and explaining to, him, to them why he responded the way that he did. And here's what he said to them. Jesus said, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But whatever comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So, verse 16 is intended to turn each of us inward to look at our own thoughts and desires. In other words, you might look great on the outside, but internally be guilty of worldliness. For example, if you come here to worship gatherings every week, but nevertheless spend your time here looking around and judging other people for how they do or do not live up to your personal standards, then you're guilty of worldliness. If you come and interact with smiles here weekly, but then berate your spouse and your children during the week, then you're guilty of worldliness. If you work long hours at your job or you, you serve at church faithfully, but then deal with your stress in your life by abusing alcohol or by binge-watching your favorite streaming service, then you need to be honest with yourself that you're loving the world and the things in the world. So when we think worldliness or loving the world, we shouldn't think about external rules that we keep. We should think about internal desires and the thoughts and actions that they naturally produce apart from God. All right, let me read everything we've covered to this point. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. These are strong words from John. And it's possible that at this point, we could think, man, like, okay, is there any hope here? 
Is there any gospel in this passage? Is there anything positive to say from this text? Well, I believe so, and it comes in verse 17. So look, look with me at verse 17. It says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is where we see the positive motivation that John gives that I'm calling love-empowered faithfulness and future reward. Now, you can almost hear the appeal in John's voice in the first part of this verse when he says, don't love the world. Why? Well, because the world is passing away. Why would you set your hopes and your desires and your affections on things that are passing away? This is a truth that some of us need to take with us, this first part of verse 17. We need to take, hear this truth, take it with us throughout our week, and speak it to ourselves when we're tempted. The next time you're about to ty- type something explicit into a search bar, the world is passing away along with its desires. The next time you're about to use your credit card to spend money that your family doesn't have on a vacation you can't afford, the world is passing away along with its desires. The next time you're about to quietly whisper some gossip to someone else to make yourself look better in someone's eyes, the world's passing away along with its desires. Don't be deceived into living your life for temporary, fleeting pleasure and acceptance. We sang this earlier. Earthly treasures all are passing. Thieves break in and rust destroys. And then it turns, as our text does, but in God are awesome splendor, love, and everlasting joys. So let's move on to the second part of verse 17. Come to this clause. It says, The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, if we were to take that clause, that, that the ending clause of verse 17, and we were to, to pick it up and take it out of its context and just read it by itself, whoever does the will of God abides forever then we might be left thinking, okay, so the answer, if I'm struggling with the love of the world, is to, is to do my very best to understand what God wants me to do, do, and then I'll try really hard to do God's will, and if perhaps I can discipline myself enough and, and do God's will, maybe I'll succeed and then be granted eternal life. But that interpretation would completely ignore the context that we've been in. And we've learned to read Scripture in its context. So then what is this verse saying? Well, remember that one of the main points that John has made in this passage is that your actions reveal what's true about you. He said that all the things in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, are not from the Father. In other words, those kind of things are not the desires that the Father is going to produce in someone's life. Well, then we might ask this question. Well, if those aren't the desires that 
the Father's love is going to produce in someone's life, if the Father's love at work in someone is not going to produce the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, what are the desires that the Father's love is going to produce in someone's life? And the answer to that is verse 17. The Father's love at work in you will produce the desire to do the will of the Father. To use the image of the tree that we saw earlier, it's the root of a connection to the Father's love through Jesus that will produce in you as his child the desire to do his will and not to pursue your own will and desires apart from him. And this is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. The gospel does not only say that we are saved from our sins at a point in time, right? 1 John 2, 2 that we talked about earlier made that point. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That means the penalty of our sins has been paid for. We call that our justification, completely rescued from our sins. But the gospel doesn't only do that. In the gospel, God also promises that through his word, by the power of the spirit, and by his grace, he will gradually yet continually conform us into the image of Jesus so that over time we gradually desire to do his will and delight to do what he requires. The father's love produces that kind of desire in the lives of his children. Now, this isn't the first In case you think I'm kind of reading this into this text, this isn't the first time that John has made this point, even in this very chapter. Let me give you two other examples of where he says something very similar, that the Father's love produces these kinds of desires. 1 John 2 verse 5 says this, Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. So when you see someone that's keeping his word, what do, you, what do you know about that person? Well, you know that there's something at work in him producing the desire to keep his word. That's his conclusion. Whoever keeps his word in that person, truly the love of God is perfected. He says something very similar in verse 29. He says, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So being born of God, being connected to the Father's love in Jesus is going to produce something in your life. Here he says it's going to produce the desire to practice righteousness. Here's the point. God did not save us to give us a quick ticket to heaven, but then go on living however we wanted to in this world. The gospel is an invitation into a relationship with a loving father through Jesus, who by the spirit produces the desire to do his will, to love his word, and to treasure him above all other things. So don't be deceived this morning into walking away from this text thinking that if you're struggling with the love of the world, then the answer is to just do better. Then the answer is just to try really hard to stop loving the world and to start doing the right thing. As if 
picking a rotten apple off of a rotten apple tree and tying on a good apple on it would, would, would change the reality of that tree. If you're struggling with loving the world and the things in the world, then the answer is to run to Jesus and to dive deeper into the root and the reality of your connection to the Father's love through Him. Because ultimately, your love of the world will only subside more and more as it is replaced by a superior love, a superior treasure. As you meditate on the Father's love and dig into His promises and learn about His character, your love for Him will begin to grow and you'll begin to see His will as a good and joyful thing. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Now, how do you, how do you go about doing that? How do you dig into the root of your relationship with the Father's love in Jesus? Well, let me give you two practical ways to pursue this. This is the means by which we fight against the love of the world and the things in the world in our lives. Do this first by listening to what he says. How are you going to know the love of the Father if you don't sit at his feet and listen to what he says? We need to obey the command of 1 John 3, verse 1, which we'll, get in a, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, where he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. That, that word see in 1 John 3, verse 1 is a command. See it. Take time. Meditate on it. Listen to what God's word says and and rehearse it in your minds. Meditate on the, on the love that it reveals. Meditate on its promises that expresses love to you. Pause and think about it. Let it stir your affections and let it motivate Jesus to be your superior treasure. And, and let me encourage you to pursue this together. I need help in this. Because there's times where I don't desire to pursue God. And I need brothers in Christ and sister in Christ, sisters in Christ to come alongside me and encourage me in this. So pursue this kind of thing together. You know, it wouldn't take any special training for you to get together with another brother or sister in our church and read a paragraph of scripture or a chapter of scripture together and talk about it and pray over it together. You're equipped to do that kind of work with each other. I pray that God raises up hundreds of those kind of relationships in our church. So do this first by, by listening to what the Father says. Secondly, pursue the root of your relationship with the Father's love in Jesus by regularly repenting of your sins. Regularly repenting of your love of the world and the things in the world. If you live a life absent of repentance then you will live a life apart from the Father's love. The path to the Father's love is a path of repentance and faith. Not just one time when you first believed, but every single day as you live in the world and you battle against the love of the world and the things in the world. And it's not going to stop at some point. You're going to battle and you're going to fight 
and you're going to repent of your sins and place faith in Christ every single day for the rest of your life on this earth. So that at the end of your life, when it's your time to die, then you can say with joy, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. I want to give you a few moments to respond to God's word right now. Let me just let you pray quietly for about 30 seconds, and then I'll lead us in prayer to close. Loving Father, capture us with your love. Open up our eyes to see the depth of your love. Give us the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all your fullness. Captivate us with your love so that the things of this this earth grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. In Jesus' name.